welcome to A Candid Crack with the chief protagonist of the, the Candid Cracks, Richard Clayton. And I'm John Dobbin, and we've got Jeff Marlow over here. And what Jeff and I are going to do, we're going to pepper Richard with questions in the same way that he peppered us. So, Richard, first of all, have a background about why you got into organisational behaviour, your journey in a, in a brief nutshell, what got you interested in it and what got you to this point? Um, accidentally, I think. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't something that I'd wanted to do from a young age. Uh, it was something I fell into um, through, through numerous circumstances. I originally trained as an artist. So, so my first degree is fine art and visual studies and worked as an artist in residence as, uh, for a while. Uh, and then discovered there wasn't much money in it. So I traveled a lot and ended up teaching English. Uh, and then ended, traveled to Denmark and didn't just do teach English, set up my own company that was doing soft communication skills. So uh, cross-cultural communication, presentation skills, speed reading, um, professional writing, all kinds of things. And then got a little bit embarrassed that I was teaching senior executives uh, all of these kind of things when I only had a fine art degree. So I decided to do a master's in cross-cultural communication and sort of get, you know, go really um, do, do the kind of work. I already had my own company doing it and sort of really formalize it. Uh, and you could only do the master's as part of a com combination. So you had to do cross-cultural communication plus uh, something else. And it was political science, industrial relations or international management. And I chose international management and then fell in love with that side of the um, of, of the studies and got a scholarship uh, to go as I think the first ever international scholarship awarded by MGSM uh, to do a PhD. Um, and that's that's how I came to Sydney. And that's why I started researching what I did. And eventually that's how I met you, John. There we go. All right. Let's sort of get into it a little bit. Now, I know that your work is, is, comes through the lens of drama. So why don't you let us know why you think this particular lens is so important um, to, to knowledge workers? Um, yeah, so, so I think we need to, to sort of go a little bit out, further out in terms of where, where the drama stuff comes from. So the drama, there's a part of sociology um, called symbolic interactionism. I'm, I'm not going to talk about that, but it's it really looks at the interactions between humans and and the, the how how they construct meaning uh, in those interactions. And um, one of one of the the great thinkers in in this this part of sociology is someone called Irving Goffman, and he takes a dramaturgical approach to organisations. And by dramaturgical, uh, he basically treats the organisation like it's a theatre. So that you, it, it's not saying the organisation is a theatre, but as a metaphor, we treat the organisation as a theatre. And he used the language of theatre to, to explain it. So you talk about roles and performances and scripts and actors and backstage and front stage and, and all of these kind of things. Um, and I was reading him and then I, I found that one of his big influences was, was someone called Kenneth Burke, who's an American uh, rhetoric, uh, sort of rhetorician, I don't even know how to pronounce the word, but he, um, he 
he had a, a model called dramatism. And dramatism, the, the, the core argument from Burke's model is drama is the best frame to make sense of human action within the world. And by action, he means motivated action. It's not, it's not sort of the motion of the wind or the sea. There's, there's a deliberate intentional action. And he thought the language of drama was the best way to, to make sense of action in the world. So I went from Goffman into Burke. So I went from an organization as, a, as, a, as it's like a theater to sort of everything is dramatic. Um, and then sort of, I, I was dabbling around with, with neuroscience. And if you're reading contemporary neuroscience, I think it's slowly proving Goffman and Burke were correct in, in, their, in their understandings and that we are, we behave as if we are actors in a film, in how we talk about self and how we perceive ourselves acting out uh, roles within the world. Um, and I think neuroscience is slowly but surely illustrating that, that people like Burke and Goffman were, were correct but in the time they were writing, so we're talking, you know, from, from the 1912, 12 or so to 1970s, there wasn't a, the technology around to, to capture the brain activity. Um, and I think now there is. And I think it's, it's, it's a highly relevant way of talking about uh, human action in the world. So, Richard, I mean, the... Um... I think, I think what you've sort of said there also touches on another topic, which I know is quite close to your heart from previous conversations, which is this idea of um, contested perspectives on organisation. Because around the same time, so if you're talking about Burke 1912 and then Goffman 1970s or whatever, um, during that period, there was very much emphasis on organisations kind of as machines. There was the whole, um, you know, the, the the Taylorism, the scientific um, management theories of 19, you know, the early 1900s, that building up to maybe the 70s, 80s, business process re-engineering. I mean, that was the mainstream model framing, if you like, of organisations. So, so how does the kind of idea of dramatism or dramaturgy, or the mix of the two, sit with that in terms of organizational discourse and the way people think about and try and take actions, not just in organizations, but to improve organizations? Um, so yeah, I, I, so first of all, if you're reading a, a good organizational textbook, nearly all of them will, will say, um, Goffman is, is the great unheard voice in organizational thinking. So you know, they'll, 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 there'll be sections on Goffman saying, look, here's a, here was a really set of really interesting studies in organization, but it's not become mainstream. It, it, it describes a lot, but it's, it's never become part of formal management textbooks. Um, and I think part of that reason, I think you've already, you've already pointed out to it, Jeff, is that he wasn't in the machine-like organization space. He wasn't in the... So the, the, even the, the, the organization is an organism, human relations kind of space. He was, he was doing something different when all of this was going on. I mean, Burke, Burke's a separate thing entirely. He wasn't talking about organizations. Uh, and he was, he was one of the guys at the time saying, look, in that sort of total institution space, 
the organization as an asylum where you're only, you, you've got to behave according to these very strict rules. And he was looking at how people would resist uh, these very strict rules, uh, as were the total institution people. So they're like, okay, there's these, this mainstream or command and control understanding of what should be going on. But there's a bunch of other stuff going on as well. And at the time, nobody in the mainstream of organization was interested in understanding this because they were building out their machines and the human relations stuff. And it was all, oh, isn't this great? We're moving forward and we're progressing. And, and when you know, someone on the side saying, well, hang on a second, what about all these people who are struggling with this and have contested, contested realities? So I, I think, you know, I think that the work was ignored at the time, but it's it's increasingly important now because I think the idea that there are contested realities in an organization, I think it's time has probably come. So if you look at if you look at how organizational behavior is taught within uh, and again, not with all within all business schools, but I think within a business school that's that's really rigorous in, in understanding um, behavior. You, you'll have three perspectives. Um, you'll, one would be the classic perspective where, where the organization is a fixed entity uh, with a command and control structures, uh, hierarchies, um, this, this kind of, this is what it looks like. It's an entity and it doesn't change. Uh, and that was sort of the way that it was thought of a uh, hundred odd years ago. And you'll, you've seen a long journey from this fixed entity to the idea that the organization is, is a process almost. Everybody within the organization is capable of organizing and contributes to organizing. Um, so there's all this processual stuff going on. Um, at times it works well, at times it doesn't work well and you're trying to find the good bits and the blockages and scaling the good bits and, 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 and stopping them. But it's still a very, very specific way of organizing. So you've still got a holding environment where everybody's supposed to share the same values and, and share the same purpose and moving the organization in, in a specific direction. And then you've got the critical perspective, which is the idea of the organization as a concept. And because it's a concept, it, it's conceptualized differently by all the various different stakeholders that, that have a relationship with it. Um, and so, you know, we, anyone who's worked in anything to do with industrial re uh, relations will recognize that, you know, the, the white collar classically and the blue collars have very different perceptions of, of the organization. And it's a very contested perception. Um, and, and that's binary. It, it's way more than that. If you go through an organization now, you're going to have finance perceiving it one way and marketing another way and ops another way and dev another way. And there's all these different things going on. And then even within teams within the functions, there's different contested realities within the organization. So you, you might have a digital marketing team perceiving the organization very differently than a, than a more traditional marketing team. And yet they're working together, et cetera. So these, this idea that there are multiple interpretations of reality going on in the organization uh, is not a new one. It's, you know, Goffman was writing about this, you know, 70, 80 years ago, new and even earlier, there's these contested interpretations. But it's, it's time is needing to come as we're talking about sort of the necessity for diversity in the organization. And I think diversity is potentially the wrong, the wrong frame. Mm. It's time has come and it's time has come because organizations need to become incredibly adaptable. And it's much more easy to be adaptable 
if you can tap into 15 possible perspectives yeah. to help the organization go forward than just one. And I think Goffman, you go back to Goffman because he was the person who first started looking at this through the lens of, of, of dramatic performance in the workplace. So that's that's where I, I sort of go to. But I think it's I go to back back 70, 80 years in order to sense make what is going on now in a way different from the diversity and inclusion discourse, which doesn't really look at it in the same way. Yeah. So from a, a practical, pragmatic perspective, you know, I, I'm a CEO and I want to improve the performance of my organization. I want to be able to create more customer value, more shareholder value. And that's the reality, you know, don't contest that, you know, um, we just need to get on with it. How does this, this lens or this, 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 this acceptance of these contested realities or this diversity of reality help the organisation go forward? Um, yeah, so, so really it opens up, I think, the space that, that is the unspoken space in organisation. Um, so in, in the model of work we use, we would call this sort of the, the impression management space is where, where behaviours tend to most manifest. Uh, and I, I would argue that this is where most organise, you know, this describes the majority of organisations in the world, that the stuff that goes on in this kind of space. So you've got a sort of a, a mean level of productivity um, in, in this space. Uh, and, and so I'll start by trying to answer what a mean level of productivity actually seems to look like, according to the data. And it really seems to look like getting about two to two and a half hours of actual productive work done a day. And about six and a half hours of, of doing non-productive work, um, i.e. impression management, You're giving off the impression you're working according to the, 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 the stage you're working on. So one of them would be signing up for lots and lots of Zoom meetings when you're working at home to illustrate to those in power that you're visible to, to those in power. So you, 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 the impression of working is, is more important than the actual work. It's, it's, it's becoming part of big email chains, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got that, that, that is dominant in lots of organizations, especially knowledge work organizations at the moment. You're, you're, you're playing to an audience you're displaying that you're working. And, and I mean, it is still work. I mean, it, it's, it's still doing work-like activities, but it's not necessarily being productive. It's not necessarily creating all the value that you could create. And I would argue it's definitely not around being innovative. If you're displaying that you're working, you're not actually coming up with these, these ideas and fully engaging yourself in because you're just emailing and, and looking like you're busy on a screen rather than moving. So Gary Hamill talks about that as being uh, the bureaucratic drag. About 30% of organisations have got, sorry, organisations have got about 30% bureaucratic drag. That is, that is a third of their energy if this goes towards bureaucracy. Is that the same thing that we're talking about? Uh, it's similar. I mean, I think I think Hamill's looking more at um, out of date management practices and, and reporting to bureaucratic structures that don't necessarily need to be there. There's a, again, we, we, drag doesn't necessarily have the drama in it. So the drag is is sort of industrial practices dragging what could happen back 
backwards because people aren't willing to let go of the control systems from from you know, decades ago. The drama is what well, given given this is the situation we're working in. How how and and given there are only a few opportunities for promotion or to get on the, the really big project. How do I play the, the, the roles that will give me these promotions or will get me the opportunities on the project? How do I do that as visibly as possible? How does it make it look like that I'm working incredibly hard the whole time, that I'm the one that's, that's most committed and most enthusiastic and most engaged uh, and the best thinker and the most likely next leader? So you're playing all these multiple parts on the same stage. And what, what is quite interesting in, in the contemporary organization stage is you're being watched by almost everybody um, because of the open plan offices, because of the transparency of the work and then the, the digital form of work where you can see whether you're, you're part of the email chains or whether you're at the meetings and all this. So, so there's this, this large audience watching you play out the roles that you're trying to play and you're trying to display your competence to, to, to each of these audiences. Um, so that, I think that, that defines a, a lot of what is going on. And one of those roles is being productive. Right? That's not, that's not, you, know, you, you actually have to do the work you're being paid to do. Um, and people are playing out that role. But it, it does seem to be only two to two and a half hours a day. Um, and because the other all the other roles get in the way. So what I would say to a chief executive officer is, well, what, if we could start doubling your productivity, so if we could actually say, look, a lot of this stuff that's going on is, is dramatic nonsense. It's playing to power and politics. It's playing to multiple audiences. It's not actually being productive. What, you know, if we can start making a dent in all of those and replacing this with productive time, would that be interesting to you? Would it be interesting to you to be twice as productive as the average? Um, and there's also well-being elements to this as well, because what dramatic the, the, this dramatic act for lots of people do is it it it's hard. It takes energy. So you don't you spend so much time protecting your playing this role, protecting yourself from those who are also playing the role and trying to beat you. It's sapping energy away from you. So you don't, you don't give all of yourself to the, the various aspects of work that you could give all of yourself to because so, you've got too much. But if, 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 if drama is the, is the lens or mm -hmm. dramaturgy is the lens, mm -hmm. then we can, we can improve. What we're really talking about is improving this, this, this play because if we eradicate some of the games, the politics and the, and the, and the impression management, don't we replace it with another form of that? You know, are we, uh, are we talking about changing, changing the play? So at the moment, we're playing this particular performance, this play, but we can go in and we can actually understand that and then change the play, which is going to be a more productive play. But is it still going to be a play? Um, from the lens I would, I would look at, is you, you're, yeah, you're, still, you're still playing roles. Okay? You're, you've still got certain roles that you have to play at work. Um, but I would like to have um, the audience, a more sophisticated audience, understanding the nature of the roles, basically. So one of, one of the things that, that we try to do when we try to understand modern knowledge work, and we've only talked about productivity at the moment, I try and shift between productivity and performance. 
products. So productivity is is playing. It's almost your it's, it's your soliloquy on stage. Okay, you're you're there by yourself doing your whatever it is you're paid to do, writing your report, doing your analytics in front of the screen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and and also sort of non-productive shallow work is another form of soliloquy. Is your or here's me speaking, you know, it's, it's just little parts going out and, and, and speaking to the wider audience. But I, I think there are other elements, the collective elements of, of, of organization, which need to be played much better. Um, so when you're part of, of, of the widest, the, the wider play or, or, or the chorus, as it were, you know, you're, you're trying to be, you're having to be collaborative. So what, what does collaborative play look like? You're trying to connect with people. Uh, build trust and relationships and have the kind of conversations in the in the in between spaces that that you would have around performance and around how you can support each other um, as, as two actors on the stage etc you can learn your part better you can spend time working out how you can be more competent by learning different elements of, of, of the part and then of course you've got um, looking after self, the role, the, the roles you play away from work, you've got to have energy to do those as well. So I would, I would look at, at constructing an understanding of, of uh, an audience level of what, what are you trying to, what, what does the play look like? Yeah. What does the drama look like? Um, so you're not playing a drama of politics and power. You're playing a drama which is more competency based. So when you talk about understanding roles, that, that's got a, that has a huge resonance. Because it means that we're we're starting to understand, you know, like if if you look at organisations with a different framework, and that framework would be one of collective computation. For these different agents, they collectively compute. And um, so one of the ways that we can look at that is we can look at the different ways that people make decisions or algorithms are made. And and when you say understanding the different roles, that's kind of what you're talking about. So. So what are some of the different roles? And, and, and in particular, I'm, I'm quite interested if you wanted to go into your, your PhD, because you, know, you often get introduced as being a, a doctor of irony. It'd be quite interesting to explore some of these different roles and why understanding the different roles can maybe improve the, the generation of, of better behaviours from our teams and our organisations. So, so the, the irony stuff um, came initially from, you know, when we were looking at this this. Goffman-esque perspective and organisation. So we were looking at what's called um, role ambivalence. So, so when you, you've got to play certain roles. Um, so for, the easiest way to understand it is I, I uh, have to be part of an important meeting and I have to go and watch my kid play sport and, and they're happening at the same time. So you can't fulfill the expectation of both roles because you know, someone's going to be let down. So that's a, that's a very obvious um, role ambivalence is I'm, I'm being pulled in both directions. I love my job. I want to do my job well. I love my kid. I want to be a good father. I'm, I can't do both simultaneously. I'm being pulled apart. Uh, so that, that's, that's a, a very standard sort of way of understanding it. But the stuff we were really interested in is when you've got two internal audiences at work who think that your job is, your performance should be different. Um, so, you know, if, you're, if you've got a, if you're performing to the team expectations and you're trying to perform as a teammate, so you're trying to display that you're, you know, you're enthusiastic about the team and you're a collaborative kind of person. And whatever the also, teammate means to you. Because well, what, whatever you're, 
yeah. yeah whatever you whatever you and your team understand that role to the, the, the role of teammate to be you're playing that role out so i'm just using sort of a classic well, well team team roles equals collaborative and enthusiastic mm. and no i in team and all of this kind of stuff um but you've also at the same time you've got the selection committee for one leadership position one promotion position and you're playing to them as well and you've got to be assertive and uh, and you've got to be self-confident and you've got to be yeah extrovert and drown else everybody else's voice because they're looking for something else so you've then got role ambivalence between those two roles um, and, and you can't perform, it's very difficult to perform them both simultaneously because they, they actually have different demands upon you. Unless you're schizophrenic. Um, well, so, so we can go into... into we, we <laughs> I'm joking, to, I'm joking. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, that, that was one of the things we looked at. You, you say it's a joke. But we actually looked at when, when the tension, when role ambivalence was so extreme, so you've got these multiple different roles you're playing at work and you're beginning to not cope with them. So this is called emotional ambivalence. And that, you know, that's when the self fragments because you, you're, you're like, you are feeling this, this deep stress around, oh, I've got to be like this and I've got to be like this. And they're two different people. And, and, and if you're not holding it all together, that's, that's hugely problematic. So, so whilst it's not necessarily, schizophrenia is not necessarily the term. The idea that, that the psyche fragments uh, and and you actually lose control of both performances, or you you oscillate rapidly and you and, and you become anxious with with them both, is is a very valid point. So so that we were looking at that, and then we were also looking at, and this this is really the, the exactly where my research went into, is when you knew um, that you had the two audiences in the room, one genuinely believed in what was being done and the other thought it was a bit stupid um and then you, you that is where the ironic performance comes in because you you know the power if, if the if the the audience thought it was a bit stupid were the one that was less powerful you would be performing to the powerful audience by saying one thing to them but having deconstructive stuff to be deconstructed by the other audience to show that you were still one of them whilst performing in a different way to somebody in power. So that was the start, and it's not where my research ended, but that was the starting point was what does this, you know, how, how does this manifest in organizations saying one thing to one person and, 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 some, and meaning something else to somebody else? And how often was this happening? And was it a protection from the role ambivalence? So was it, was it actually a way of, of, of not experiencing a fragmented self and, then, and, and actually feeling, experiencing a much more holistic version of self. I mean, you see, you see multiple aspects of this, don't you, Richard? I mean, this kind of playing to two different audiences. I mean, a number of things are coming to my head when you were just speaking then. It's like, specifically the example of, you know, you need to perform on the team and be seen as a good team player, but you also need to stand out because there's some promotions in the offing. So you kind of, the, the logic is, well, hang on, they want teamwork, so um, I'm going to stand out as the best goddamn team player they've ever seen. So you According get to their of, definition. Well, you know, according to the individual's kind of understanding yeah. of what performance yeah. required. Um, you also get another phenomenon that I've seen a lot in organisations, which is the firefighting arsonist, which is the person who allows a problem to blow up, made and pour fuel on it, so that it gets a lot of attention and then they can be highly visible rushing in and put, being seen to be the one who puts out the flames. 
Um, there's, there's the kind of the classic thing. I mean, the book written about Enron and Enron's collapse, the smartest guy in the room. You know, a lot of kind of grandstanding and showing that you are knowledgeable and, and quoting stuff and you know all the all this kind of kind of thing and then there's the sort of a, a wonderful statement one of my colleagues made of, of, of someone he'd encountered and, and he said ah yes brian he said brian always renders every possible assistant short of actually helping so th these kind of seem to me to be kind of common i don't know caricatures that you find in an organization of people the, and I'm using the term caricatures deliberately because that's what, you, you know, you watch The Simpsons, you watch any kind of comedy thing like that, you know, you've got these characters of people that we relate to. Or Dilbert, for example, you know, the thing that makes it work is we can see the reality of organisational life in these things playing to audiences. Yeah, and, and so that, I mean, that was sort of the role that, that the academic plays is, is you, you're, you're, you're set, sitting outside watching the stage from afar, trying to see all of these various different characters playing out. And, then, and that's part of the detached stance as well. You, part of irony requires you to detach from the action. So you end up being an observer of the action whilst being in the action. So seeing these different character types doing these different things is part of the coping methodology from, from the kind of work we did. But you also have, and this is, this is where I, and I know you've said that I don't seem like a normal academic because I, when I detach myself from the academic role into the academic role and you're making sense of it from an external perspective, you've also got to recognize that's only a partial uh, drawing of the caricatures. It is a character, you are seeing caricatures. Your other people are having other realities and their realities are just as real to them as your way. You're, you're not creating necessarily a superior reality that's going to be that useful. Um, but what you're so so what I try to do is say, well, okay, if you start seeing these character these characters playing out roles on stage, and and you're in the action, not an academic who's not because they can't do anything, but you're in the action. How how do you? stop the arsonist from burning everything up because you're there and you can do the work um and so we, we and go to go back into the drama metaphor we talk about backstage and front stage work so you know when you talked about enron that's a front stage performance i'm walking into the room i'm going to display that i'm the 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 uh the smartest guy in the room and and you're you're doing a whole front stage performance but this arsonist is potentially doing a whole bunch of backstage things that don't get heard, seen, seen or heard. But there are also people doing backstage things that are fixing problems and, and you know, gluing things together and progressing the organisation. They're not, they're not there to, to try and do it for, for selfish means. It's a much more of a collective activity and a collaborative activity. They're the kind of people we were looking for, is, you know, whilst accepting that some of them were pulling the backstage you know in the backstage and, and doing stuff for, for egotistical purposes we were looking for the effective ones who were holding everything together in the backstage that very often you you never saw on a front stage they weren't very good at, at doing the front stage drama and the acting that, that, that got them noticed at the front yeah 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 and i mean we, we've had conversations recently about this idea that with working from home a lot of the collective capability to do that backstage fixing of stupidities because you know organizations the formal organization has often created 
or made decisions that are based on poor sense making and overloaded decision makers. And when those decisions enter the body of the organization, people actually have to enact them and take action based on them. They kind of go, well, that's crazy. They can't mean that. And then they have the corridor conversation and do the backstage stuff to rescue the, you know, to, to rescue the senior executives from themselves, to save them from themselves and rescue the organization. And as you say, a lot of that is, is um, completely off the radar. Nobody sees it apart from the people who are always doing it. Uh, and certainly the people who are making the poor decisions and imposing them on the organization, you know, a, a, don't see it happening and B, sort of can't allow themselves to see it happening because if they did, they'd have to face up to the poor decisions that they're making. Yeah, and, and that's the contested interpretation. So this, this is the, the sort of the pragmatic third way uh, lens an organization I talked to at the beginning. You've got, you know, there, there's some, some, something has been made up there and said, said up there, but then you've, you've got people going, well, that doesn't make sense. How do I play around with it and make it make sense to the work that, that I have to do or the culture that I'm in or the, to the client that I've got? How do I, how do I, and a lot of that kind of stuff happens in what, what the research calls liminal space. So you're transitioning out of the formal, but you haven't transitioned and you're not transitioning into the next space. So you're, you're, you're in a coffee shop or um, I think you even talk about the bathroom stall being one of them where you, you, know, you, you wander off and, and have a chat and you're by the urinals, for example. So you're in that liminal space and you've got like, what the hell did they mean? I don't know. Well, do you think it was this? Yeah, it was that. Well, let's try. And, and so what, what, that, that's been stripped away quite a lot during COVID. Um, and, and it's not just COVID, but that, that's in all organisational life, that is seen as non-efficient stuff that, that's not being measured and tracked. And it's being stripped out of lots of organisational design. It, it's, it's, all, it's sort of like, well, all collaboration is formal collaboration in a space that we control, rather than the stuff that manifests as you're moving from one space to another and you're in this in-between kind of space. So that, that's where we, we, one of the other things we looked at was, you know, what actually happened in, in the backstage or in the liminal uh, and how much did that impact high performance and, and problem solving and uh, delivering uh, strategy. Uh, and, and we, I mean, from the research we did, uh, the answer is a lot. So that sort of cycles back to John's question is what, what would you tell the CEO? Why is this important? Well, because it, it's more than productivity. It actually is where all the problems get solved, where all the new ideas manifest, where the interpretations that make a difference happen. Mm -hmm. And without them, um, all kinds of things could go wrong and they will ramp up to big errors before you've noticed them because no one's having these conversations. Right. And, and that's a really practical thing, right? So you want to, error, you want to reduce errors, you want to be able to, to, to make better collective decisions, et cetera, and so forth. So what are the skills that organisations and particular knowledge workers need to, to, to build and develop in order to get better at this stuff? I mean, I think I'll, I'll go into uh, an interpretation of self that, that is, is perhaps, it's not really a skill, but it's a capacity, perhaps. Um, so what, what, what tends to happen in organisations is there's a, an assumption that the self is, is a bunch of personality traits uh, put together and you can predict performance by uh, aligning personality traits and, and to an extent values. You go, right, here, do you have the right values and you fit um, do you have the right personality for this job? Then you'll fit. So there's this kind of understanding that 
that, that there's a sort of a, a science understanding of self, which is a very, very narrow and limited understanding. Um, because personality traits have never been particularly good at predicting anything. Um, but it's, 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 it's the, the language of organizations now. It, to the extent that, that people are saying, you know, an organization has a personality and we find people with similar personalities to match. Um, and so I, I would say that that's not very helpful. What, what is helpful is, first of all, to recognize personality traits or dispositional traits merely as tendencies towards action. Uh, that's all they are. So there's a tendency that you're going to act in a certain way based on your your um, whatever traits you have as dominant, but it doesn't mean you're always going to act that way, and it doesn't predict that you're going to be better at your job. Than Sorry, just else. just to be very very specific. Here. When you say acting, what do you mean? Thinking? Do you mean making a decision? Do you mean expressing? No, I mean that, they're, they're all forms of action. I mean, okay. so so you know if you're if you're if you're an introvert, for example, and, and you're trying to make a decision, the chances are uh, that you will take longer. To, to research that decision than, than an extrovert might. So there's a tendency to, to, to sit and think and, and work through it a little yep. bit longer than somebody else. But it's only a tendency. You as an introvert could also go, oh, no, that's the answer. I know that for a fact. You could be making decisions like that because, you know, for, for, for many reasons. So there's a tendency that can help predict action. So it's a st statistical outcome rather than a, than a causal outcome, if you like. Yeah, it's a deterministic yeah. outcome. Yeah, it's there's a there's a yeah a higher 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 chance you'll act this way than that way, and yeah. and, and and that's pretty much it. Um, so so that you know I think that we we sort of look at them just because these are tendencies rather than absolutes, and we need to sort of move them aside as you know something interesting, but not anything that really explains um, how people work. So what I'm what I what I start to become interested in is. The, the, the ability of the person to adapt to the roles that they have to play. So you're talking here, here you're talking about characteristic adaptations within the, within the literature. Um, can I, here's a role that I have to occupy and this role pre-exists me, okay? It's, it's the idea of leadership pre-exists me. It's still being played around with and we're getting new insights into what leadership means. But there are a number of assumptions around what leadership means in this organization, in this country, and in this context. And, and I have to occupy that role. Um, and in order, in order to occupy that role, I have to, there are a number of different behaviors that I have to become quite good at, um, which I then can, you can or, or a number of competencies that I need to be displayed that I'm going to have to develop either by training myself in them or becoming very reflective about how I act. The rollout, so so I'm I'm internalizing them. So that's when you start building the skills. It's related to the role that you have to do, and it becomes a very deliberate act. But you recognize that, you know, that, that those roles are culturally and organizationally specific, and what what is right, what what seems right in one culture and one organization is not necessarily the same way the role would play out in another culture and another organization. So you become open to these adaptations and you're becoming aware of yourself as a somewhat fluid being that can adapt itself to these various social roles. Now, I'm very interested in, in more than the adaptation. You're looking at um, sort of the, 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 the origins of authenticity in, in that is, okay, this role, there's absurdities in this role. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, so, so before we go into that, I just want to be really yeah. clear. 
Yeah. Now, in in a you know in a complex organization, we might be playing multiple roles. So you, yeah, we are. You, yes. Your 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 taxonomy, if you like, encompasses that. So it's not just a role. No, no. So you so, so, yeah. and we might have ten roles in a given day. Absolutely. So these, yeah. Okay. So what you're trying to do is in, in, in one level, you're trying to be able to, to, to think, again, you talked about the schizophrenic response. It's a fluid response. Is, is yeah. I, I am capable of just shifting. I understand all of the, the, the role demands as I move through them. And I'm happy to move through them. They don't um, impact my sense of self. It's just a role that I'm playing rather than something that's psychologically troubling to me. I'm, I'm, and, and the authenticity thing is... Okay, there are absurd things about this role that don't make sense. And I think my interpretation of this role is better than the role. So this is where authenticity comes from, is when you look externally and you see the absurdity of the structure, you think, well, okay, this doesn't work for me. Um, how, how do I perform this better? And that's when you go back and look internally or you start trying to find different ways to bring yourself to that role and be better at that role than that so you, you find the role limiting and you're trying to build a better understanding of that role so that you can without having role. some sort of an identity crisis because without having any role. any identity crisis at all you just go right this this when i'm occupying this role i i i think it should look like this yeah. you, either you go this role's fine it's ethically fine and i can just do it or you go there's some absurdities here and i want to play around with this to to, to to make it better and to make myself less limited in that role so there's there's a degree of fluidity in moving around different elements of the organization and, and different audiences here um and then the third level is is the integrated life narrative and this is the story you tell of self through and this is where i think um you know, pe people think their life narrative or the narrative self is their authentic self rather than something that they're constructing. Um, and it's it's constructed. It's the story you tell of self and the story that, you know, we're all of a certain age. The story we tell of self now is going to be completely different than the story we told of self 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It, it's totally and utterly fluid and it changes throughout your life based on, and, and what I would like organizations to do is you go, this is, you're trying to understand how people would adapt to roles. You're trying to understand um, how they would fit roles, how they would improve roles how they would um, you know, how they would fly in those roles, and you're to do that. You don't want to look at traits because they don't they're not particularly helpful. You want to understand the richness of their life story, how they tell stories of themselves, how they've occupied roles before, how you know where where how adaptive how, what evidence is that they're adaptable to both cultures to to to, to role demands to industry demands because that seems to correlate with this person is going to be good at so is, is adaptability a skill um i think i think well i think it it's potential some people can do it i mean again you could say that that, that partially it's it's an inherited trait that some people can just do it um but it's something i think that can be learned i mean this is i mean i think i've explained how you would learn it you just rather than worrying about inner self and and this is this seems to be in con my, my values seem to be in conflict and this seems to be in conflict with how I want to behave. 
think of it as roles that you have to occupy and, and adapt to and adapt the roles to you and, and then think about how you tell your life story and, and, and how you describe yourself as part of this adaptive, uh, adaptive construct. Yeah, so I, I think it's something that can be learned, but it's, it's only going to be learned if you move away from the tra- my traits define me, my personality defines me. I mean, this is, this is quite fascinating, Richard, in terms of my understanding of you, because, I mean, I know you and John have known each other for m- many years. I mean, you, you and I, Richard, only really encountered each other in the last year or so after the COVID lockdown started. But the, the phrase you just used, I think, really, if somebody said that phrase to me and said, who does, this, this, who does this remind you of, you would be the person who came to mind. And it was the idea of the richness of life experiences. And you, you've described a bit of that already in terms of starting off doing fine arts, and then go to Denmark and the things you did there and then getting into the kind of leadership frame of things. But there's another dimension, and, and this is something that we've had a little bit of conversation about in the past, which is your ability to, A, stay out of the, I'm the academic and I know lots of stuff and therefore you should listen to me, which is, which is quite rare. You might, not, you, know, you might not see it as rare from the perspective of the role that you occupy, but certainly looking in from the outside, I see it as extremely rare compared to the business academics that I've encountered over a 30-odd year career. Um, but also your ability to not take offence when people are quite forceful about expressing a, an, an opinion that is different to an opinion that you've expressed. And I think this richness of life experiences is part of that because... I, th- I think it's really useful to understand a bit of what you, you experienced when you were involved in the video game industry and mm. the, the kind of the, the experience of, 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 of the role that you had there, but also the learning of managing a video game uh, forum for people whose life is basically the video game. Um, could you say a little bit about that? Because I, I think that was probably mm. quite... From my perspective, I think that might have been quite formative in terms of some of your rich life experiences. I mean, it, yeah, it would never have happened if if I hadn't won the PhD scholarship and, and, they, and it hadn't been the first international one because it was the problems of dealing with the, the fact that English university scores and Australian university scores are very different and that the people processing the visas didn't realise that. And so we're reporting back to the Australian university, he hasn't got good enough marks to give him, an, uh, um, uh, to give him a scholarship because the, 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 according under the Australian system, I've done very averagely, but under the British system, they're, they're excellent marks. So that was sort of, so I got stuck for, for a while. Um, and I started playing, uh, I played it as a, sort of similar games as youth. I started playing football manager. Um, and I, you know, as a, as a young, somewhat uh, cocky guy at the time, um, I thought I knew everything about football. Oh, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, I know, I know football. And um, I found out I, I couldn't play the game. And that, this is soccer when, if for, for the American yeah, audience. Soccer, this is soccer, soccer. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, and I couldn't play the game. Um, and I was sort of going into the forums, finding out, you know, what was everybody saying that you could play the game. And I was experimenting with all the ways that everyone said, oh, this works, this works, this works. And none of them seemed to work. And, and, um, and even if you did get some results, the, the, it, it just looked terrible. And it was just, there was, there was a, obviously a... So I, I initially wrote a, a post, my first ever post, I think, on the forums was, I think the match engine is broken. I think the game is broken. Nothing works. 
um, and then went about proving myself wrong <laughs> um, by experimenting and reading and, and adapting and sort of going, oh, what, what, what actually do I know about football tactics? Well, not very much. Um, so why do I think that I could play this game? So we started, uh, uh, so I, I just, because I had time to spare because I was waiting for this, you know, I, I was waiting for this um, uh, scholarship to come through. Uh, so I, I played quite a lot of it. And eventually I worked out the mechanics and I designed uh, a guide for people to play it. And so that this is, this is how it works. And then I posted the guide and then I think I did another one the next year. And I started getting a group of people who were sort of saying, oh, no, this is exactly what we wanted to, to, to this is great. This is proper football mechanics. This is, this all makes logical sense. So it wasn't just me anymore. Then there was a group of people and they were designing the guide. And so I think the last couple of versions, I didn't write any of them. They, they, it was a group of people that clustered around me, but that was largely because I'd been asked by then by the, um, the, the makers of the game, Sports Interactive, to import my guide into the into the game itself so that the game the, the same language that we were using in the guide and the same way that we were describing it um, was the way the game was played so we, we the, our, our language and our way of thinking about it was was turned into the input mechanisms within the game to direct to direct the players and so whilst so so whilst this was going on by this stage i was already started the phd and i was researching it and i was really interested in the ambiguity of instructions so i wanted to i didn't want it to be like you know move here's a slider with 20 possible things because that's not how people receive instructions i wanted it to be a little bit more vague, a little bit grayer, a little bit more ambiguous as to as to what what things were saying, um, and so we were doing we were doing this stuff, and, and I had a couple of death threats for break for, for you're destroying my game. Um, I had um, lots of people telling me that the most interesting thing was lots of people telling me I was dumbing down the game, that I was making it for stupid people, and, and only you know and the people that really understood the game were never going to use my system. And for a number of years, you had both systems simultaneous, and then they eventually got rid of the old system, and it was just the one that I put in. Um, and of course, all of those that had told me I was dumbing down the game and they had to switch to a system where they couldn't beat the AI just by doing stuff the AI couldn't do. They were lost. They just went from, oh, I'm brilliant at this game to I'm terrible at this game. And then we had all this big blow up about the game being rubbish. And, and then we had another thing where people began to read the guides and began to understand how the mechanics worked, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, that that sort of. Yeah, that, that, that paralleled a lot of the, the, the research that I was doing that on the site as, as studying the PhD. Um, it was reviewed by the press as, as sort of the, the biggest step forward in football management simulations, you know, since they'd started because it was a real um, a shift into, into proper language rather than mechanical language. And you know, instead of a sliders of one to 20, you know, you'd, you'd bring, you say, oh, I want to play a deep lying forward and uh, with a poacher rather than putting all these slides and then you're using this real life language. Uh, and of course, the, the, one of the, the really interesting things was I ended up doing, doing some further research there and I was trying to research stuff around one of one of the positions. I can't remember which one it was. I think it might've been the deep lying forward or maybe a deep lying playmaker. And I was trying to find um, 
some some online research on it and I got, got looked at doing a Google search there's this website and I was oh yeah and it was all about the role so I went on the website I'm really excited and it was what I'd written five years ago they'd just <laughs> taken it and pasted it on so I, I, I that sort of ended the loop of, of um oh, okay so I've actually contributed to descriptions around football tactics um that, that are being used by other websites um so yeah that it was a really interesting and and the anger and the uh, and the emotions involved with the people on these forums about what I, I was potentially doing to their game and yeah. then their, their 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 deep emotional attachment to the game uh, and I, yeah, I think it has been formative because it. I mean, I, 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 you know, at the same at the same time, I had a lot of people telling me that that I was shit and this was terrible and I was a devil. I had a whole bunch of other people saying, "No, this is this is brilliant. This is the way the game should be going." And so we had this real collaborative group doing it and and, and taking my ideas way further than I could have taken them myself. Mm. And and that, and that collaborative group, a lot of the final product was was. I, I did the frame, but it allowed them to attach some wonderful further ideas on, on the edges. But yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's what work should look like. You know, you've, you've got a framework and I think I do have some interesting frameworks and you can put it in. All kinds of other people come around the edges and, and, and run with it and, and you can move into all kinds of interesting directions. Yeah, and I think for me, that's kind of, that, that, that cameo really characterises the role that you've played in the creation along with Oscar of EQ Lab, because there is a genuine feeling, certainly for me, and I mean, I'm interested in John's take on this as well, is we do feel like we're a collaboration of equals rather than people who are coming along to be anointed by the master or, you know, some other kind of dysfunctional form of relationship where people are trying to suck up to the figurehead person and stuff. It does genuinely feel like it's, it's a network of extended intelligence. And I think it's only because of those kind of formative experiences that you've had that enables you to play the role you play in the way that you do that makes that possible. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think I think I had a very good supervisor and a PhD who who had a cohort of seven or eight people, and we would meet regularly and, and explore stuff together. Uh, and and there's there's nothing like a you know, there's nothing quite dents your ego as much as being in a business school when you're the one who knows nothing about the subject doesn't matter how good you think you are you you're always coming up against people who know who've read 70 books that you've not read on the subject and who are willing to tell you how little you know so so there's a that that was also hugely formative was how the hell do i ever get up to that level yeah yeah and i i i, I that's how i approach everything yeah everybody knows stuff that i don't know and that will always be the case um, and just be open to it. Mm -hmm. yeah. So before we get to the, the, the $9 trillion question, which, which Jeff can ask you, but, but, but the, the whole time we've been talking, I've just been, you know, visualising this, this drama which plays out in, in organisations all the time. And, and it seems to me very unconscious. And, and this is the, all of the signalling that we, we, all the subordination signalling that we do to power. And so a, 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 a more powerful, someone that we perceive as more powerful enters the room, even more powerful in terms of status you know, or, or rank or knowledge. And then there's all this, this little drama that goes on. You know, there's a change in the tone of voice. There's you know, the way you look at someone in the eye. 
And so, so there's one thing for the, the people who are less powerful to maybe to, to, to use this interpretation of self, this theory of self, to be able to, to experiment with that. But in order to, to really execute change, and I think what Jeff almost alluded to it, is that it almost seems that if we want to do it quickly, does it have to come from the top? Is it the, is it the more powerful have to create a new, new environment or a new way that, that people don't have to, to worry about this power so much. So, so if we wanted to really, we, 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 want to, we, we want to encourage diversity, we want to encourage cognitive diversity, we want to encourage the interchange of ideas. And these things often get stifled through the execution of power. And, and so without, I know we could go on for an hour for this, but just very quickly, what, what, can, you, what can you do using this framework to, to, to help the more powerful um, stop playing that role which stifles conversation and stifles dialogue. So, I mean, I, I, the role of a good leadership coach is to, is to do that. Um, so so what, what good coaching of the individual should look like is to help them see them performing the role as they're performing it. So, you know, the, the, to go back right to the stuff we were talking about at the beginning and why I use drama, there's um, the initial conception was you had an eye, which is the same, you know, the eye or the eye, um, watching the me's play, the various me's, the various different cells that you have playing out the action on stage. So what you're trying to do when, when you're looking you're looking at a leader who's, who's in a complex environment and you're going, well, in a leadership coaching uh, environment, what are the chances that your your answer is going to be the first thing you say is going to be the right answer? Yeah, and most most people who've got to any kind of position of, of power are going to say, well, not very high. I say, well, how do you you know you've just got to look at how, will will the right answer is what's the likelihood of the right answer being in this room? Well, probably quite high because I've got a bunch of people who spent years in working in this field and then they all understand the context of the organization so how do you make sure that these answers have opportunities to breathe um and and part of it is literally so i know you and i've done stuff on, on psychological safety jobs it's become almost cliche now is people people don't understand what it means they, they confuse it with safe spaces and all kinds of things but the aim is how do you actually create an environment where all ideas and all critiques, no matter how brilliant or how foolish, have the space to manifest to make sure you don't miss the right one. And for the leader in, in those positions, so as soon as you start exerting power, as soon as you say to somebody, oh, that was stupid, somebody else who might have the right idea might not say it because they're, they, they don't want to be. Yes, absolutely. And, and are there, are there dramaturgical? models or, or frameworks or, or insights that so again to sort of to go to go back into that the, that idea of neuroscience and i think all of this has been proven um it, you know there's the this this idea that you have to watch yourself performing while you're performing so you actually have to recognize you know the brain the brain has the capacity to watch performance in the action <coughs> Um, and that's what you're trying to train. Yep. Getting on the balcony is one of the metaphors. Getting, yeah, so, getting, so, so the adaptive leadership stuff, getting on the balcony and, and yep. watching the dance. But it's, also, it's actually slight, that's slightly wrong. 
because it's being in the dance and watching the dance simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, so, that's, so, that's, that's, so that's what the requirement is. That is that's what the requirement is. So you're, you're in the dance, you're, you're part of the group, but you're recognising that, that what your uh, interaction with the group is, is, is likely to do to the group because of the power dynamic. Yeah. So you're being very, very intentional and conscious about your role about how your role impacts the other roles and how your role impacts the, the likelihood of the play having a tragic or a comic ending, as it were. And yeah. by a comic ending, I mean all of the foolish ideas that, that are shared in the room end up producing the right idea, which takes you in, in, in the right direction, rather than the first clever idea that, that you hear, you implement, because you go, oh, that was good, and that's actually the wrong idea, and that's a tragic ending. So you want all of the foolishness to produce a comic ending where everything turns out right in the end, rather than you go, oh, that's great, you're brilliant, which produces a tragic ending. And, and that's the role of the, the power in the room, to make sure that, that the foolishness manifests in, in the pursuit of a, of a good ending. That's a wo wonderful. That's a wonderful way to frame it. A wonderful way to frame it. Yeah. <laughs> do you want a tragedy or do you want a comedy? <laughs> I guess, you know, in terms of time, we're, we're sort of at that point where at the end of all these candid cracks, we ask the nine, or you normally ask the $9 trillion question, Richard. So we're holding up the mirror to you today to ask you the $9 trillion question of what, what would the future of organizational, organizations and organizational life look like if you were to have the kind of transformation and change that you've been talking about in terms of people understanding that humans construct an integrated life narrative, but it isn't actually what they are. How, how would things change? So, so normally I, I should look pensive and say, that's a good question. But um, fortunately, I've thought this through already. So um, <laughs> I will ask a different question. <laughs> so, so, so what, you know, we, we talked a little bit about productivity and, and you know, that the aim is that, you know, what happens if you the mean if the mean is two and a half hours of productivity a day and then you can get it up to four or five hours then then you're you're making a you're making a massive dent in this lost trillions but that's not the big dent the big dent is is right so now now we've got rid of all of the 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 power and politics or, or we've minimized them and we've made you less stressed about playing different roles in different ways and you've become much more fluid in it and, and you're recognizing that you're creating a rich narrative and then and that you're it's not the inner self that's under threat um you're then moving into the the performance spaces and performance i mean this by you know in terms of high performance in organizational terms but also performing the collaborative role Okay, so, you, so you're now part of an improvisation theatre, you're collaborating together to create something wonderful. Uh, and, and you don't know what the end point is going to look like, but you're all playing around and working together. And so then you're going into the stuff where we're talking about inventive work, um, which, you know, then then you've got a 10 times difference between the best and, and, and the average not to two and a half times, 10 times difference. So you create, you're potentially creating 10 times more value. Then you've got the stuff Steve Jobs used to say about the, 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 the software engineers. He said, well, you know, the, if you put together a team of the best software engineers, and these are people, all of whom, and he, he's very clear in the interview when he talked about this, they all have artistic and dramatic hobbies. So they've all got this dramatic sense of life going on in the background, whilst also being exceptional at 
coding and, and software engineering. He said, then you're adding potentially 50 to 100 times the value um, because you're pushing, you've got these people who, who, because they have this rich life narrative, because they are drawing from dramatic artistic hum humanities based stuff as well as the science, are able to see further into the future, are, are able to imagine more futures and are also having the skills to try and take the organization there. So you're now looking at 50 to 100 times the value. And then you've got the final claim, which I think is Google's claim, which is if you've done this and you, you create a product that gets into the market and dominates, you're then creating 300 times the value of the average. So we're talking, you know, here, if you're doing this in the organization, we're pushing these boundaries all the time within the organization you're already being twice as productive as the norm. So that's massive amounts of money saved, but you're now being more innovative than the norm. You're being more inventive than the norm. You're moving faster than the norm. You're creating products that can dominate the marketplace. Uh, and it's not that you will, but it's you're much more likely to by approaching work this way. And that's when you start looking at the, the many trillions of dollars that Ostra and I look at. Yeah, yeah. My, my final question for you, a really brief one. Um, who wears the baseball cap better, Oscar or John? Well, John's wearing a sailing cap. It's but, sailing sure. <laughs> but, it, but it's, it's, it's very classy. <laughs> Richard, thank you so much. Pleasure. Any final words? I think that's good. I think we'll call it a wrap. Thank you, Jeff. All right. Thanks, All guys. Right. It's been a blast. Let's do it Fantastic. again. Sometime. Okay. Bye-bye.